Welcome to this meaningful time of worship here at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. With today's message by our pastor, Dr. Buckner Fanning, we hope and pray the Lord will speak to you in these next few moments as we enrich our hearts and lives through worship together. Let's join hands with each other, and before we pray together, just turn to the person on either side of you and just say, God loves you. <clears throat> and now, dear Lord, we pray that we will hear you say that to each one of us. Give us an open heart to hear your marvelous affirmation of your eternal love for each one of us. God, in a marvelous and meaningful way today, personalize yourself with each of us meeting the needs that are deep in our minds and hearts whatever they might be we've come to this place to worship you we come like empty vessels to a full fountain fill us we pray with your living water your presence we pray in Jesus holy name amen Remain standing and take your bulletin and let's share the Word of God together. The words are printed on your bulletin from Psalm 100. It's a marvelous affirmation and beautiful statement from Psalm 100. And we read it together. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I read from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, known as the love chapter of the Bible. And now I show you the most excellent way, writes Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then the conclusion that you know, and let's say it together, the last verse. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. How true. Dear Lord Jesus, the embodiment and personification of your eternal love, 
bless us with your presence. And then, dear God, may your spirit love the world through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce Darlene Welch. And she says, I'm a behind-the-scenes kind of person. I'm not used to doing this. Darlene, I'm, I do this all the time, and I get nervous. People don't believe that, but God knows it's true, and I know it's true. She's coming to share a very important word of testimony, and she's coming out of a heart of sincere commitment to the Lord. And so you listen to what she says and listen to the message from her heart as Darlene shares with us. Bless you. Uh, hi, <laughs> I'm Darlene Welch, and I'm a single mother. And uh, as a single mother, I've had to rely on God a lot because it's just been him and me raising my son. And uh, uh, during the Next Mile campaign, I was asked to be a hostess. And I had, up to that time, I had just given a little money here and there in the uh, collection. But I decided, well, if I don't have snacks or sodas at work, I could give, that would be $5 a week that I could save during the week, and I could commit that. So I committed my $5 a week for the Next Mile campaign, and I found that, was, that worked pretty easy. And over time, I added to that. Well, a few years later, uh, I had uh, surgery I was going to have in January. And so I started worrying, how am I going to pay for it? Uh, you know, the insurance paid most of it, but there still would be a part, portion I'd have to pay, and I'd be missing work, and how would I make all the money? Well, I got my statement of what I had uh, given the year before, because it was January, and I looked at that statement, and I had a bad attitude, and I said, boy, I could use that money now. And uh, so, but I went in, I had my surgery, and I came home from the surgery, and Marilyn Cox, who a lot of you may know, used to sit up here in the choir, but she's married now and is Marilyn Jones, came over to my house, and she had collected a money tree from my friends at church. And she had uh, her son, Ryan, when she found out she was giving, he was only a preteen at the time, and he even gave a dollar towards it. Well, when I counted the money from the money tree, it was exactly to the penny the amount I had tithed the year before. And God just gave the money right back to me. And since then, uh, of course, I was able to pay all my bills. Everything worked fine. And uh, last year, I was able to buy a house. And then I lost my job. And, you know, I became fearful again. But I remembered that. And I remembered that God had been with me before. And he was with me again. And uh, I have another job. And I'm, I'm doing fine. So, thank you. Isn't that marvelous? Hey, you, Darlene, you touch my heart. God bless you. God bless you. What a marvelous, marvelous testimony. Well, what God did for her, he'll do for us. God is not prejudiced. He loves all of us, wants to bless all of us if we'll let him. Jesus taught in parables, stories. 
And I want to talk about one this morning that's a very surprising one or a perplexing one, a stimulating one to your mind and imagination. And I ask God to help us understand the meaning of it. Someone has described a parable as a short story with a long meaning. Short story with a long meaning. Jesus spoke in parables. He taught in parables. He not only taught in passages or, or stories that were a little longer, he taught in, in uh, epigrammatic, succinct ways that were uh, what are called parabolic similes or parabolic sayings. Some of the similes are, for example, uh, you do not put a lamp under a bushel. Uh, you do not put new wine in old wineskins. You do not, uh, well, he said he saw the multitudes as sheep who had no shepherd. It's a simile. It's a parabolic simile. And then he, these sayings, he, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a picture. You can see that. Uh, a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. A man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Little parables, statements. Now this one this morning I want to read you is from the 20th chapter of Matthew, the first through the 16th verses. Unfortunately, they made the chapter division in the, in the middle of a conversation that was taking place, uh, which has to back up to the 27th verse of the, of the 19th chapter. What is happening there, some fascinating things happening here in the closing, these, these dramatic days in the life of Jesus. In the 27th verse, Peter asked Jesus this question. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What's the deal? I mean, we've left our fishing boats. We've left our occupation to follow you. Now, what do we get? What's in it for us? And Jesus responds to that a little bit, and he says, And anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then he uses this phrase, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now that ends the chapter, and it's unfortunate because the, the, the 20th chapter continues this this uh, event that was taking place. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Now this follows. He just said, but many of you who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landlord, a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire men at work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, uh, Peterson translates it, New International Version, I believe, or the New American Standard Version, one of them uses a dollar a day. But whatever the equivalent was for a day's labor, he said, I'll make a deal with you. I'm going to pay you what you get for a day's work. We'll use a dollar just for purposes of understanding. I will pay you a dollar for the day. And he sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, now that's 9 o'clock, about 9 o'clock. Now these first fellows went to work at 6 because the day began at 6. Jewish day begins at 6 in the morning and ends at 6 in the, uh, six in the evening. It's the end of the day and a new day begins. They went to work at 6 o'clock. But at, at 9 o'clock, 
He went out and he saw some others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now here it is. And I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. They went trusting him to do what was right. An act of faith on their part. Don't know whether he's going to pay us at all or not. He might rip us off. I'll do what's right, he said. They believed him, so they went to work at 9 o'clock. He went out again about the 6th hour, that's noon. Went out again at 12. And at the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, which would be 5 o'clock, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And because no one has hired us, they answered. They wanted to work, but no one had hired them. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, now we get to the crux of the matter here. Exciting story. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, go call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning from the last one hired and going to the first. Don't begin with the fellows that started work at 6 in the morning or at 9 or 12 or 3. But go get those who got in at what we would call the 11th hour. Go get those who were the last to come at 5 o'clock and worked only an hour. Pay them first. So all the others were standing around and watched them get paid. So they, these fellows didn't know what they were going to get paid, the ones who'd worked an hour. So they handed the payout. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a dollar. I mean a full day's wage. And they'd only worked an hour. Oh, you talk about excitement. Hugging each other and hugging the foreman and the landowner and everybody else. Oh, this is wonderful. Paid for a full day. So when those came who were hired first, who'd been there since 6 o'clock in the morning, expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a dollar. Well, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a dollar? Take your pay and go on. I want to give the man, not pay. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. What in the world is Jesus telling us in this parable? In all of his stories, he's really trying to tell us something about God, about the character of God, about the nature of God. All of his stories are told to help us understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? That means to have God as the king of your life, the Lord of your life. It means to be a follower of the king. All of you who've trusted the Lord are already in the kingdom of God. You're a part of God's 
kingdom in this world. So, he's telling us something about the nature and character of God. Now, let me say a word about the landowner. In, it was obvious that he owned the vineyard. It was probably September when they were gathering the grapes. And he went down there early, 4.35 in the morning, and he saw these fellows standing there, a whole bunch of people. It was kind of a work center for the laborers. And he went down there and he employed some. He said, oh, okay, I'll pay you. I'll make you a deal, pay you a dollar a day for the day, a normal day's wage. So they went to work. Well, if you don't get those grapes in before it rains, they're ruined. So that, uh, that uh, foreman and that landowner looked out there and they saw some storm clouds gathering in my imagination is what I think happened. They saw them gathering over the Mediterranean. They said, we better get some more workers or we're not going to get all the grapes in. So he went back down there at 9 o'clock, came back out there. The storm seemed to be coming closer. We're still behind. Went back at 12, got some more. Went back at 3 and got some more. Said the day's nearly over and we've got to finish the job today. Went back at 5 o'clock the last hour and got some. They came back out there and worked. Now, let me say a word about the laborers. They were at the bottom of the economic scale of the day. The servants that worked in homes and even the slaves that served in homes had a more predictable day and had a more stable environment and employment than did these fellas. They'd meet down there every day and just hope that somebody would come by and give them a job. Now, it's important to notice that they were not idlers. They were not casual standers around. They were down there wanting a job. That's why they stayed there all day long. They didn't loiter. They didn't go off. They didn't say, well, I didn't get on at 6 o'clock, so I'm going to go home. They stayed. Some more came at 9. Oh, boy, I wish I could have gotten in with that bunch. Some more went at 12. Oh, man, I just missed it. And then the 3 o'clock crowd went. They said, well, I don't know. It's almost the end of the day. I don't think we'll make it. But they were persistent. They had little, they had little mouths at home that were hungry. They had families to take care of. If we can just get, if we can just go home with a little. I mean, if we can just go home with a dime. It'd be better than nothing. They were not lazy. They cared. They wanted to work. That's very important to this story. And so they stayed there, hoping that they'd get a job. Now, there are a lot of marvelous implications in this when you get into it. Get into it with me, just kind of on the surface here for a moment. What, what this says is what nearly all of the parables of Jesus say in one way or another is the basic message that God is a God of love and of grace. That's what this landowner is. He is saying that I am a God of not of a contract, but I am a God of a covenant. I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to give to you more than you could ever earn, more than you deserve. Jesus is here showing us that God is a God of grace. I remember in 1960 when Dr. Lofton Hudson stood here in this pulpit and we were dedicating this sanctuary. And we'd had different speakers come through the whole week to speak about one area of the church's ministry or another. George Beverly Shea was here and sang a concert to dedicate the, the church's music ministry. Uh, Dr. Lofton Hudson was a pastor and then a writer and then a head of the Department of Psychology, a wonderful man. 
And I visited with him not many years ago, a couple of years ago, over in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he'd never heard me tell the story that I'm telling you now. But he stood right here, and he made a statement that I didn't agree with. Now, I was sitting over here at that time, I believe, when I was on this side, and he made a statement that, that I didn't get up and interrupt him. Of course, I would never do that to, to anyone, to any guest, but I, I heard him make a statement. I said, I, you know, I don't think I'll buy that. And this is what he said. He said, no person can get more love out of God than anyone else. I thought, I'm a preacher. <laughs> and I go to church all the time. And I read my Bible every day and I pray. You mean to tell me with Simon Peter, what am I going to get? I'm not getting more love than anybody else? What kind of deal is that? You mean to tell, I just suddenly just went going over in my arguing with him in my mind. You mean those guys that I passed this morning on the way to church that are playing golf down there at Breckenridge Golf Course that God loves, that I'm not getting brownie points because I'm up here in church doing all these noble things for God and they're down there playing golf? Come on, what kind of deal is that? The more I thought about it and the more I listened to Jesus and not just Lofton Hudson, and it's been a growing thing for me. You can't get more love out of God than anybody else. How do you get more than all? How can you get more than all? And he gives all of his love to each one of us. St. Augustine said it. He loves each of us as though there's only one to love. You've heard me, some of you, use this illustration of our three children. Uh, we didn't have a child till Mike was born. We'd been married seven years, had some trouble having children. Mike came along, oh, my, my. We were so excited and so happy. And we said, oh, Mike, we love you. We love you. And uh, loved him with all of our hearts, our only child. Three years later, Steve was born. What did we do? Did I call Mike in and say, Mike, good news and bad news. <laughs> you got a little brother. You had 100% of our love, but, you know, fair is fair. Steve deserves some, right? You're down to 50%. Well, Steve didn't know he was going to get 50%, so it wasn't any big deal with him, so there it was. Fair is fair, right? Well, we kind of got over that hump, and then six years later, Lisa was born. Boys, no nose, right? <laughs> Lisa was born. Boys, I got some good news and bad news. You have a little sister? My, we wanted a little girl so badly. She's here. Mike, you're down to a third now, son. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> you're going downhill fast like the stock market. It just looks like zoom. You're going down. Steve down. No, 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 no. You know what? You're laughing because you know how ridiculous that is. We laugh at parents doing that, and yet we turn around and think God would act like that. Every one of, all three of our children get 100% of our love because love and grace do not come in fractions. Mike is an only child as far as love is concerned. Steve's an only child as far as love is concerned. Lisa's an only child as far as love is concerned. And if I can do that as a sinful and selfish parent, how much more does God, the epitome of all love, love every one of us as an only child? God is trying to tell us here that he's a God of grace, indivisible, love, undiluted. Now I want to make a statement. Listen carefully. 
Nothing you can do can make God love us more. Nothing we can do to make God love us more. Conversely, listen, nothing we can do to make God love us less. His love will not let you go. You can go to the farthest reaches of the earth. You can plummet to the depths of the sea. You can close your eyes and ears to the pleadings of Almighty God, but His love will follow you into eternity. You cannot shake God's love. Now, we can be blessed by responding to God's love. But we don't get more. We begin to understand more and appropriate more and let it apply to our lives, but we don't get greater quantity than all because you can't get more than all. You got it all. You have all of God's love, a God of grace. Also, he's a God of equality. God is the great egalitarian. Equality. All these fellas... Didn't make any difference whether it came at 6 o'clock or 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, or at the 11th hour. Every one of them got the whole blessing of God. Got a full day's pay. Not as a contract, but as a covenant. A covenant. Now, I have a covenant with only two people in the world. I have a covenant with God not a contract. I have a covenant with God and I have a covenant with Martha. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. It's not a contract. I take out the garbage and she mows the lawn. <laughs> it, it's not a contract deal. It is a covenant relationship and that's what we're seeing happen right here. God God didn't say, I'm going to pay you. He said, I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to give you what is right. And he does. He's a great God of equality. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. It's a great statement. It emanates from the First Baptist Church of Washington, D.C., when many years ago, a man who had been elected from, as a senator from his home state he and his family joined the First Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. and stood at the front as we have people stand and introduce them to the congregation. And here was the senator and his wife and children coming to be members of the First Baptist Church in Washington. Standing next to him was an obviously poor black woman with children. Dramatic contrast in income, color, power and the pastor introduced them and there they stood side by side and he made a statement that was either original with him I give him the credit for it but it is a powerful truth he introduced them and he said let this remind you that the ground at the foot of the cross is always level Whosoever will may come.
equality. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. There are no super saints. There are no graduate school Christians. Making a difference how long you've known him from six in the morning. You may know more about him, but you don't have more of his love because of that. We're all equal before God, wherever we are, wherever we've come from. God is a God of equality. It says in heaven there are 12 gates, 12 gates to heaven. Three on the east, and three on the west, and three on the north, and three on the south. And that is God's way of saying they're going to come from the east, and they're going to come from the west, and they're going to come from the northern hemisphere, and they're going to come from the southern hemisphere, and some are going to come early in life, in the sunrise days of life, and some are going to come in the midday of life, and some are going to come in the sunshine years of their life, but we're all going to come, and it says we're all going to sit down together in the Father's house, and we will celebrate him forever and ever and ever. Amen. God is a God of grace, and God's a God of equality, and God is a good God. He is a good God. That's what he says here. Anything wrong with me being good, what I do with my own money? I want to give to the man who was hired the last, the same as I gave to you. It is right that I do what I want with my own money. God is a good God. When you read in the Bible that God is good, that word does not primarily refer to God's holiness, to God's sinlessness, to God's perfection. It doesn't primarily refer to that. Those are true. God is sinless. God is holy. God is pure. But what the word good means when we read it relative to God in the Bible, most of the time it means that God is generous. God gives and gives and gives love and grace. He gives. One of the fruits of the Spirit we read in Galatians, the fifth chapter. The fruit of the Spirit, not Fruit, plural, not fruits, fruit. It's a cluster of grapes. It's a cluster of qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness, generosity and faith and humility and self-control. God is a good God, and He wants His Spirit to penetrate us and to permeate us and then to reach out through us to the world, to love the world to be God's joyful people, to be at peace with God and one another, to be gentle and kind, loving and good. God is good. And then finally, and maybe the most important word, there are many that could be said as we think about and pray about and look at this marvelous, fathomless story. God is a God of comfort. He is a God of comfort. When you read this story, you realize that Jesus is saying something about God 
that is so important for us to hear, and I pray you will hear this. What he is saying is that it is not what we have done. It is not what we have done, but what we would have done had, the, had we had the opportunity to do it is the basis of our reward. It is not what we have done. It is what we would have done if we'd had the opportunity. It was in our heart to do it. Robert Browning picks up this same idea when he writes, not what, it is not what man does, but what man would do that exalts him. What a person would do in God's eyes counts for being done if, if circumstances and situations intervene to keep the person from doing it. Probably many of you in this room, I know a lot of you in this room who are ministers or pastors or chaplains or missionaries, know people that felt God calling them to pastor, calling them to preach, calling them to be as a missionary, and they trained for it, and they were dedicated to doing it, and something happened that interfered with it. Health broke down, and they couldn't go. Family responsibilities took over, and they had, a, had an ailing parent that they had to care for. Or the home dissolved because of internal pressures, and they didn't get to do what it was in their heart to do, and they wanted to do it for God. God counts it as done because it was in your heart to do it. God said that to David. He said to David, it was in your heart to build a house for me. It was in your heart to do it. And he says, you did well that it was in your heart. He never got to build it. He planned it. He prayed for it. He tried to get some of the materials for it. He secured the land. It was in his heart to do it. But God didn't let him build it. But God says, I'm going to give you credit for doing it because it was in your heart to do it. Some of you in this room who started out in one direction and you felt God wanted you to go and it didn't happen that way. It was in your heart to do it and God gives you credit for doing it and will bless you as though you had done everything that he felt, that, he, that you felt he was leading you to do in your life. It was well, you did well that it was in your heart. I think that's the reason Jesus just exploded with excitement when he saw the widow throw in those two little pennies. He was sitting there watching people make their offerings, make their offerings. They were very public, and they were throwing them in the treasury. Jesus was sitting there watching them, and he saw this widow come, and she put in two pennies. And you can almost, if you read it and, and allow body language to enter Jesus' life, you can almost see him springing out of a seat and clapping his hands and patting John on the back and saying, Did you see that? Look at that. She gave more than all the rest of them put together. She gave out of her need and not out of her abundance. You did well. It was in your heart to give a million. You gave one dollar. You gave Coke money for a week. It was in your heart, and it was well. Well done. Well done. Martha and I were in a revival many years ago back in the 1950s in Clinton, Tennessee. Paul Turner was the pastor. And uh, this was the early 50s, middle 50s, 
lot of racial tension at that time. Some of you who lived through those days know how difficult it was. And we held a revival there and left. And a few months later, I heard about Paul. He had taken the hand of a little black girl and he had walked her through the crowd surrounding the public school in Clinton, Tennessee, standing there blocking the entrance of black children into the school. Jeers, curses, ridicule. Paul took the hand of that little black girl and walked her through that crowd and into the school. They fired him the next Sunday. And in the racially bigoted south of those days, he was blackballed. No church would have him. A photographer took a picture of Paul leading the little girl into school, and it was on the cover of Life magazine. But it cost Paul his life. He went down, down, and down. And died early and prematurely. But I tell you, Paul, you did well. You did well. It was in your heart to do right. If the heavens fall, do right. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. We kind of need to straighten out some doctrinal matters there. And when I finish there, I'm going to come to see you. But I'm going to go first to Spain, and then I'm going to come to see you. Well, he never got to Spain. He went to Jerusalem, was arrested, two years in jail in Caesarea, put on board a ship and taken to Rome, in jail again, and eventually Nero had his head cut off. He wanted to go to Spain. Instead, he got a jail cell in Rome. But God said, you did well, Paul. It was in your heart. It was in your heart to go. And because it was in your heart to go, circumstances intervened over which you had no control. It's to your account that it's credited. You did well. Halford Luckett tells a story. On the campus of uh, a university here in America is a monument to a boy named Jim. Jim, it says, year he graduated, Jim gave his life on the battlefields of France, saving the life of a comrade. It went on to say a little more about him. And then in small print at the bottom, it said, he played four years on the scrubs. Now, that may not be a familiar term to some of you. Scrubs, B-team. At Baylor, we called ourselves the Ragnots. 
You didn't make the traveling squad. You didn't make the second team. You didn't make the first team. They just used you to beat up on, the varsity to beat up on during the week. Jim played four years on the scrubs. Well, you know, I believe he wanted to be on the team. He wanted, to, he wanted to be on the traveling squad. He wanted to suit up for a game. Never got to. He wanted to be a first team player. Who doesn't? He wanted to be all conference. He wanted to be all American. He wanted to be a four-year letterman. Four years, though, on the scrubs. But I believe... It was that kind of commitment and the kind of character that was forged in the heart and the life of this young man those four years on the scrubs that motivated him to lay down his life for a brother. He lettered on God's team. He made all heaven on God's team. For the last shall be first. God is graceful and kind and loving and cares for you. Is it in your heart today to do well, to do right, to do what God's leading you to do? To trust him as your savior, to follow him into the life of this church? You do well. You do well to do that which the Spirit of God motivates you to do. I'll be right here to greet you. Will you do that? You'll do well to make that decision now. Let's stand and let's sing.